It is uh, good to be back before you after being out last week, an unplanned outage on my part, so I'm really grateful uh, that we have people to be able to step in and fill gaps like Aaron, so just really appreciate him. I don't know if he's in here, but appreciate him filling in uh, on short notice uh, to be able to preach what is a difficult book to preach. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but this is only the second book uh, prophet that we've ever preached at the Grove, the first one being Jonah, and that was a long time ago. Because the prophets are not only difficult to understand, but even more difficult to explain <laughs> and try to preach. And so uh, we'll do our best as we finish up Habakkuk today. Um, and then again, next week, we're going to be uh, doing our seven-year anniversary, where we usually paint a picture towards the future. Next week, we'll talk about what we sense that the Lord is doing or uh, may be doing through us and for us in 2022. And that'll be the main focus. But today, uh, we're going to finish up chapter 3. Uh, and all of Habakkuk here today. And as we do, I want to ask you this question to kind of get our minds going in the right direction here. And is when do you find it easy to trust in the Lord? When do you find it easy? And when is it difficult? When is it easy for you to have your trust exhibited? And when is it difficult uh, for you to continue to trust in the Lord? You see, the answer to that question is going to reveal the foundation of our faith to be what is dangerous. And that is circumstances. If we have good circumstances, it's easy to trust. When things seemingly are falling apart, it's more difficult to trust. And yet what we find is that we will draw near to the Lord when things are difficult. And so maybe God has a different plan for us other than just to have peace all the time, but to be near him. And the book of Habakkuk is helping us understand that the nearness of God, though seemingly far off sometimes, uh, is truly uh, the greatest blessing that God can give us, his presence, not just what he gives us, right? I don't know about you, but I look around in our culture, I look around in what's in my heart, and I think to the things that reveal shallow trust. Many days I think, Man, it's difficult right now. I'm feeling a little anxiety. I feel a little bit low-ebb depression seeking in when I've got relational strife seeking into my life. When there are achievement issues, one of the things why I was so grumpy over COVID time is because I couldn't do anything. What was revealed in my heart was that, man, I put a lot of my identity in getting stuff done. Not in resting not in just being on what someone said, a mini sabbatical, not a mini sabbatical, not restful. I just can't do anything, right? All of a sudden, that, that anger starts to produce, and all of a sudden, you go, man, why is this happening? Because I'm finding that I have an idol of achievement here that God is rooting out of me continuously. Or yet, I look around, and I pick up my daughter from a $3.6 million home the other night from a birthday party, and I go, I wonder if, we're, if possessions are our God. I don't have to live in a $3.6 million house to have possessions as my God. I can live in my non-million dollar house and still have possessions as my God. Not about how much we have. It's about how much and how closely we hold on to what we have. Or if it's not relational strife or achievement or possessions, then it must be my comfort that when I'm comfortable, my journal doesn't seem to be written in. But when things are difficult, oh man, I'm filling up the pages. I wonder if your journal is the same. I wonder if you have a journal. Or if you just use Facebook. Oh, is that anybody? No, just me? Okay. Ouch. 
You see, these things all reveal for us that we are guilty of circumstantial trust. That when things go south, my question for you, Habakkuk's question for you will be, is God trustworthy? Will we have trust or trepidation where there'll be chaos or where there'll be consistency, where there'll be panic or will there be peace? See, all throughout this journey with Habakkuk, we have found this prophet, this spokesperson on God's behalf, journeying through this this, uh, process of maturation. And we see it right here on the page. We don't know how long it took for him to go from chapter 1 to chapter 3, but we do know there was this process of him growing up right before our eyes. You see, in chapter 1, verse 1, he doesn't answer uh, Habakkuk's prayer. God doesn't answer his prayer. And so he says, how long, O Lord? And the question there is, will we trust him when God is silent? When God finally answers in chapter 1, verse 6, and he says, behold, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, your sworn enemies, those who are terrible and evil on the earth, I'm going to use them to do what you asked me to do, and that is bring justice upon the great nation of Israel. And when that is absolutely puzzling to Habakkuk, the question that also is being put before us is, will will we receive his puzzling providence? Will we receive his answer even when we disagree? When we continue to plead for a different way forward, and he says, look, quote, I, quote in, in uh, verse uh, 5 of chapter 1, I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And so he continues on to say, trust in me. Again, in verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. And so the question will be for us, will we take him at his word? Will we trust in a God that doesn't do what we want when we want it, how we want it done, and in the timing that would be convenient for us. You see, God is telling all of us, and he's said all of this throughout all of chapter 2, really. And I'm just recapping the, 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 the story so far. What he's telling all of us, at least through chapter 2, is don't fall into the trap of looking at the world around you and trusting in wine, if you remember last week's sermon, trusting in wine, trusting in unjust gain, trusting in pursuing safety, or using people to achieve your goals. God is saying, I will overlook that for a time, but I will do away with all those who make and worship idols. He continues to say that. And instead, he says, will you trust in the God who dwells in his holy temple far above every throne, power, and authority? That's how chapter 2, verse 20 ends. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Will we trust the God we cannot see that's doing a thing we don't understand? Or will we fashion for us little gods that, that do provide a little bit of relief temporarily, like wine and achievement and things like that? Will we continue to trust? So as we journey with Habakkuk into this last chapter, my invitation for you is to remember you too are on a journey. You too are on a journey of deeper faith. You are not, friends, Christians, brothers, sisters, listen. You are not on a journey of achievement or accumulation. You are not on a journey of of finding comfort and of peace. You're not on that journey. You are on a journey, friend, of maturity. 
You are on a journey of becoming more and more like Jesus and less and less like your old version of you. That is going to mean trouble. That is going to mean difficulty. That is going to mean disappointment. That is going to mean some dark times, some disorientation. We can't go and be uh, on a journey of maturation while at the same time being comfortable at all times. There's this great narrative in these days that if it's uncomfortable, I don't want any part of it. If it causes me a little discomfort, I'm out. But yet we cannot follow Jesus if we just opt out when there's discomfort and disorientation. So, really, I want to ask this last question as we go through this. As we journey with Habakkuk, as we, more importantly, journey with Jesus to become more like him, will we become a good and compelling witness to his character Because our neighbors are going to do one of two things with their lives. Jesus in the background of this culture. But for those that just kind of add on Jesus as they go, and he doesn't really make a big difference in their life, they're going to do one of two things. They're going to pursue comfort. They're going to pursue achievement. They're going to pursue success. And they just might get it. And at the end of that journey, they're going to find themselves asking this question. Is this all there is? It's going to end up being hollow. Our neighbors will find the hollow end to that journey, or they're going to waste their entire life pursuing something that will always remain elusive. Either way, they get it, and it's hollow. They just may not admit it. So they drown themselves in people or possessions or the vine or the wine, or they never get it, and they waste their whole life forsaking all else to get it. And then my question for us as Christians with Habakkuk As my witness here is, what kind of witness will you be? Will your story be compelling to a world who is distracted by a a small view of success, peace, and prosperity? See, if we're not careful, we'll look at what celebrity Christianity is all about, and we'll start to equate following Jesus with hanging out with Bieber. Following Jesus with, with, with going on tour. And that's not the Christian life. Christian life is mundane, slow death to self, tiny choices to follow Jesus, honoring him when no one else is watching. And Habakkuk's private journal prayer life helps us see this. So what, will you, what about your journey will compel your neighbors to journey through life's storm with Jesus instead of finding and pursuing peace and prosperity apart from Jesus? Will it be that you are more successful than anybody else? And so therefore, maybe you have an opportunity to like teach a master class on how to do your profession. And that's going to be your compelling witness. Could be, praise God, if he gives you that influence. But what will be your story? When the lights turn off and the Instagram world goes away eventually, because God will redeem this world and that will no longer be our purpose, we'll be seen by people. Instead, we'll rest in being seen by the creator of all things. Hello. Instead, when we move past all of that, what will be our story? Is there something more compelling? You see, what was so compelling for Habakkuk is the same thing that compels us, not the safety or security or success of God's people in Israel, staying a people, staying in their city, but a people who, whether or not they succeed or fail, die or live, have smooth circumstances or in a rough patch, have found Jesus to be better than all of it. 
Habakkuk's story forces us to ask as we finish today, why are you following Jesus? Inviting all people to follow Jesus in all of life. Why are you following him? Is it to get stuff? Better life? Free ticket out of hell? That's helpful. I would like to not go there. Or is there something greater? See, as we go through this last chapter, we've already read it, so I'm not going to read it again. But I am going to read selections to help us understand how is it that Habakkuk got this deeper faith and however long it took him, that it wasn't just a, a simple or a shallow trust that, oh God, you've kept our people safe. You've said you'll always keep us safe. And so we're going to bank on the fact that you're going to keep us safe. No, he had picked up some companions along the way in his journey. So I want to talk about three companions to trust. Trust is good, but the Bible does say add to your faith in 2 Peter. Add to your faith. So what is it that we can add to our faith? For Habakkuk, I think the first thing that he added to his faith was humility. Humility. You see, he went from demanding that God do a certain thing a certain way in a certain time to now going, okay, I get it, Lord. See, verse 2, it says this, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. See, if you remember the first couple of chapters of Habakkuk, he's pleading to God and saying, no, 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 you can't do things like that. You can't, Lord, I don't know if you know this, but you're an eternal God, you're a wise God, and you can't chastise your people Israel by using the evil nation of Babylon. And what he comes to find out somewhere along this way is that he actually no longer is a person that's going, you know what, we're, we're your people, don't forget about your people. Instead, he's saying, oh my goodness, we deserve far worse than what you're about to hand out. No longer are we justified because all of a sudden you say that we're your people. No, we are not justified. We are sinful. We have strayed from your ways, oh God, and we deserve your wrath. But in your wrath that you're going to pour out on me, would you be merciful? See, there's a humility that comes when we just own up to the fact that we deserve, deserve far worse than what we have. And you might think to yourself, and you might be saying to yourself right now, well, you don't know my story. You don't know what I've been going through. You don't know my loss. You don't know my, what I've been grieving over the last two years, five years, ten years. You don't know. You don't know my childhood. You don't know what they did. You don't know what he did or she did or what's about to happen. You don't know. But you know who does? The Lord knows. And he knew exactly what was going on in the nation of Israel. He knew exactly who was going to die in the siege that Babylon would come against Israel. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew that there would be innocent people that would suffer. But Habakkuk has come to understand there is no one innocent. Not in the grand scheme of things. That just like Romans 3 says that there is no one righteous, no one good. Not even one. In wrath, remember mercy. I mean, how could he make progress in that kind of journey except learned humility? Humility is one of those words that we think we know what it means, but we need someone else to kind of help us explain what it means. C.S. Lewis says this about humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. 
Habakkuk had gone from making his righteousness, Israel's righteousness, the center of the reason why God should, therefore has to answer his prayers the way that he wants, when he wants, how he wants. And now he realizes, wow, God's character is at the center of this thing. Not me. Not what I think God should do. There is a learned humility when we take ourselves out of the center and realize God has always been at the center. But there's something here that I want us to understand. I want us to ask ourselves this question. See, Habakkuk came to realize that sin has consequences. Habakkuk came to realize that, that, that the nation of Israel, their unfaithfulness to God, their harlotry against God, that they would go worship other gods and therefore actually have child sacrifice and things like that, that kind of thing meant that God could not turn a blind eye. And because he's a God of justice, had to intervene at some point. I wonder for us if we realize that in our journey with Jesus, are we open to the idea that some of our suffering is due to sin? Do you have room for Jesus as your homeboy to also be Jesus, the God of the universe, who won't tolerate sin? Do we have that understanding of who God is? Because my, my fear in suburban America, as I've just been sitting on my keister for the last however many weeks, just going, man, are, do we understand Jesus? Do we understand what he came to do? Do we understand how to follow him in the suburbs? Or is he just a nice tack on because, man, my life is good? See, do we have an understanding that some of our discomfort, some of our failures, some of our, our, our uh, discomfort in our life is a result of sin, and therefore God is calling us to, yes, draw near to him, but also repent and believe in the good news of the kingdom. So you're thinking to yourself, so any sort of suffering is therefore a result of sin? No. John 9 is very clear about this. There's a man that's born blind, and Jesus is about to heal him, and they ask him, is it because of this man's sin or his parents' sin that this man was born blind? And Jesus says, it's neither. It's so that the work of God might be displayed in this man. So suffering sometimes isn't a result of sin. Don't hear me say, if there's one thing you hear me say, don't go home and think, well, my life is terrible because I've made a mess of it, and therefore I need to repent 100% of the time. Not true. Sometimes your life is terrible, and it's a mess because God wants it that way to just draw you near. Not because of sin, because he wants you. But sometimes it's sin. And it takes the Spirit of God, it takes you sitting alone and journaling, being with the Lord to discern, Lord, if my life is a mess right now, what have I messed up? Is there something here? Look, search my heart and know my ways. Let me know if there's something offensive in me so that I can repent and believe. Go confess my sin to a brother or sister and be healed, James 5 says. That's still good, beautiful Christian practice. In our journey, do we have a room for a God like that? See, do you live like the flourishing of your relationship with God is dependent upon how you treat others? Husbands. Y'all listen to this right now. Husbands. 1 Peter 3 says this. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, don't get stuck where I know you're stuck. You're missing it. 
you're stuck on a weaker vessel. You're stuck there. Look, most of you in this room, if you have a husband, they're probably stronger than you. You would admit that, and you would go, okay, that's, that's like an obvious thing. Some of you can, can arm wrestle your husband, and it's, it's, a, it's a fight, all right? <laughs> that's fine. But if it's not physical, then just think about it this way. Sociological, women were not in a position of authority back in the day. Whatever they could or could not do was based on what their husband said or said they could not do. They were, in a sense, weaker sociologically. Okay, that's just true. So whether you think you can arm wrestle your husband or not, that is really not the, not the point. What the point that, that Paul or Peter is making is that there is a, a, a system here that they're operating within. So before you get distracted, get to the point. And the point is, husbands, if you treat your wife poorly, your prayers will be hindered. Your relationship matters. Your relationship on how you treat one another matters on whether or not your prayers will be answered, y'all. Our sin matters, makes a huge difference in how we relate with God and how he answers us. That's the point. We have to have some humility in how we're living. Oh, Lord, do I fear you? Are you worthy of reverence and awe and fear? If so, then, oh, my gosh, you are a holy God, and I, I deserve not to be heard right now. I deserve not to be heard. There is humility that must accompany our faith. Secondly, not just humility, but also perspective. Humility brings perspective. If you read through all of chapter 2, what you would find is that not only did like Jacob read it so beautifully. You know why he read it so beautifully? Not because he, he substituted Yehovah, although that's fine, Yahweh, a very, a very, a very uh, reverent term. That's beautiful. It's because the man was fighting back tears, seeing God tread upon the nations in wrath and in fury. And if we get excited about that, we have to remember that we're the nations. We're the nations, and that God, through his son Jesus, would forgive us and have mercy upon us. You see, what we see in chapter 2 is a God who will be victorious over every injustice, over every difficulty, every other, every, over every single court injustice that we see in this nation amongst every nation, that there were lots of nations that don't get the kind of justice or injustice we get in our courts. Over everything for all time, he's keeping record of that, and he's going to make it right. You see, when we have perspective, we all of a sudden can start to think about the grand picture of history. And if we look at the grand picture of history, what we see is this picture of redemption. So I'm not going to read all of it, but just look at chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Hopefully you have your scriptures with you. So amidst all this destruction, amidst are you angry at the earth, amidst like the, the, the Lord is just trampling over all of the earth, look at the character of God that when you see the, the world falling apart around us, will we also remember that this is the kind of God that we serve. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. God will deal with 
his enemies in due time. It was promised in Genesis 3 when, when there was, uh, of course, you know, the great fall of humanity. God is also promising, again, amidst great trial, amidst great tribulation, is God also promising and offering salvation to his people. Not just in Habakkuk, but throughout Genesis all the way to Revelation. In Genesis 3, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, but he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God is cursing the serpent, Satan, and also prophesying to the future when Jesus will be this king. When Jesus will come out from among his, 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 where, where he was in heaven and come and crush his enemy, Satan, our enemy. And he will lay him bare from thigh to neck with a sword, with one strike. And that's all it'll take. It's this great picture that God will make things right. From Genesis to Revelation 21, where Jesus says, he will, or John the Revelator says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And in verse 5 it says, and he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things New, from beginning to end. You see, when we have a microscopic view of injustice in the world, we can't see the big picture of redemption. So when we think, oh, how could that person do this? Or how could I go through this? Or where is God in this particular little moment? We miss out on this greater picture that God is using every single moment that we miss or that we see for redemption's purpose. He is making all things new, including you. Through every single circumstances, it is a heart of renewal that he's orchestrating. So if we have a microscope in history and we go, oh man, I don't really like this president, we start to freak out. I can say that right now because there's not really an election going on and you guys aren't all charged up about it. So maybe you'll listen. It's okay if it doesn't go your way. God is a God of renewal and redemption. If you just, just go wide-angle lens and see it all and go, oh, my gosh, that's so silly. Why am I even upset about that? See, when we start to think about our struggle with sin and every little struggle with sin, and we start to go, oh, my gosh, am I even a believer? And the enemy will start to whisper to you, and he'll go, hey, I thought you were a Christian. But you wide-angle that thing, and you go, okay, one, like, that's a big one, but, like, in the wide angle of my life, the wide angle of God's plan of redemption. God's doing something greater here. When I think about my relationships and I think about parenting in particular and I have a really bad week, not that I've had one of those recently, but I think about man, that one little week was awful. My kids are going to grow up to hate me if they don't already. All right? But if I broaden the scope and I think of the wide-angle lens and I go, you know what they're not living in? They're not living in a home that's Muslim. They're not living in a home that's agnostic or atheistic or Buddhist. They're not living in a home that, that preaches some other gospel of salvation by works. They're, preach, they're living in a home where it's hopefully being modeled out for them that no one is perfect, no, not one, except Jesus. So I can have a broad angle, wide angle lens of God renewing my kids through my failure. That their hope is not in a perfect mom or dad, but a hope in a perfect God. So I wonder if we can see 
how God is offering salvation and mercy in the midst of pain and confusion and what feels like ultimate destruction. God is coming out for the salvation of his people, writing this beautiful story of redemption in a broad perspective. And the final companion as we close that we find from Habakkuk, not just humility, not just perspective, but finally joy. How can a person have joy when they have nothing? You will be faced with this question. If you haven't been faced with it this week, November 8th is tomorrow. How can a person be joyful when they lack everything? This leads us right here to the end. Look at what Habakkuk says. You see, he sees this God who's trampling the earth. He knows that he's a God of salvation, and yet he understands the difficulty that's about to befall his people, that he's going to have to sit in Jerusalem during the siege of the Babylonians, and that's going to be the worst thing that he's ever been through in his life. And so he says this, Oh, I hear in my body trembles your plan. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me at this thought, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. See, what we know is that the Babylonians, in all of history, they fell to the Persian Empire in 539 B.C. Come to find out, it's about 70 years after this. It's exactly the amount of time that God prophesied that his people would go into exile. God makes good on his promise, and Habakkuk wakes. He may not have even ever seen the fulfillment of this prophecy, that God would deal mightily with the Babylonians. Yet he waits. Verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Yes, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Why do you worship Jesus? Why do you follow him? Is it because he gives you all that you want, when you want it, how you want it, with the timing that you want? Or when all of that disappears? When he doesn't answer that prayer, when you experience the loss that you've experienced, will you still rejoice? When God doesn't change his mind about how he's redeeming the earth, even though you've prayed day in and day out, you've even fasted about this thing, and yet he remains steadfast in whatever plan he's unfolding in your life, though uncomfortable it may be, will you follow? Will you worship? You see, Habakkuk takes joy, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Not in smooth circumstances, it is in God himself. How does he find joy here? In want, in lack, in desolation, in pending doom. Well, the kids memorized this, didn't they? If you're a parent and you helped your kid memorize the scripture for this month, this is what they memorized. ESV this time instead of NIV. Whom I have, whom have I in heaven but you, Psalm 73, 25, and 26. And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Is that the cry of your heart, friend? 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, Peter echoes this in John 6, verse 68 and 69, when, when Jesus says, you, you gotta, if you want to follow me, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody goes, excuse me, are you a vampire? Are we zombies? What's going on here, Lord? And he looks at his, and everybody leaves. He looks at his disciples, he goes, you want to go somewhere too? You want to leave too? And what does Peter say? What? Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe that, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus lays the gauntlet down, but we still find him as our treasure. His joy is found in continuing to trust in Jesus in spite of the fact that he is not some genie who lives at your every demand. He doesn't work at Subway, where you just go down the line of the Bible. You go, I want the cold cut trio. He doesn't live at Chipotle, right? You knew Chipotle Christianity was coming up. If I got an opportunity to bring that up, I'm bringing it up. And you know what? Aaron said he worked at Luby's, so let's go down the line there and get a Luann platter. Some of you are, I only got like two laughs on that. If you're over 40, you giggled a little. If you're under that, I've got nothing for you. If you don't know what a Luann platter for you is, find a Luby's today and go get a Luann platter. How about this? Everybody knows this. Amazon. Jesus doesn't work at Amazon. He doesn't just give you what you want when you want it. Just a little fee. No, 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 no. This God has got this great lens of your maturity. The fact that he's redeeming you. That's the lens that he sees your life. That's the lens through which he governs the earth to make all things new. So we start, we end where we started. Will we trust him? Will we be a people that have deep, abiding, compelling, resilient faith in a God who doesn't do everything we want him to do, but a God who does all things through a lens of redemption and renewal? Let's pray. Lord, you say in this book that the righteous shall live by faith. May we show our righteousness and demonstrate that righteousness by deeper trust. Lord, I pray that our faith will be on display for our neighbors, for our kids, for our co-workers. And things are awful. And they go, hey, how are you doing? You go, you know what? Things aren't great right now, but I serve a big and mighty God. Even though he may not give me everything I want when I want it, how I want it, I trust him. He's good. He's present. He is my only hope. And so I rejoice in him. Lord, give us the ability to not just say those things, but believe them and feel them, know them to be true. Create in us humility. Give us perspective, Lord, and may we always choose to rejoice in you. We love you and we trust you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.